Great to see everyone today. Take your Bibles, if you would, and let's go back to Luke's Gospel, where we have been camping out, really, on uh, one verse, frankly, for weeks now. (laughs) And uh, it's been really just a a thrill to launch from Jesus' statement in Luke 9.23 and expand it a bit so that we can learn to have the right perspective on our lives and on our walk with Christ. You remember Jesus had said to the crowd, you want to follow me, then you need to deny yourself. Take up your cross daily and follow me. It's fitting that we talk about this um, self-denial process and the practical aspects of it, especially this month, because it's just such a difficult thing when it comes to the, the holiday festive seasons. I was watching the news a few days ago or so, and the nightly news reported a, um, all that was going on at the post-Thanksgiving shopping <laughs> And, and it was tragic, really, that the culture found it somewhat entertaining that, um, that people were going to the stores and, and actually getting into physical assaults and physical altercations over merchandise, over what they wanted and what other people had. Some people were throwing punches in the aisles and things like this. And, you know, the, the thing that was most striking to me was the commentary wasn't really all that disturbed. I mean, they made a couple of comments, but you would, you would imagine that uh, there might have been as much opinion as is shared on the news. They might have said something like, that's absolutely ridiculous, and, uh, and uh, gift-giving is supposed to be about other people, not yourself. And, and um, it's just amazing to me that we have descended to some degree into the kind of culture that finds, that finds an attitude of discontentment as entertaining, entertaining. And we have been learning, thankfully, the very opposite. To live is, as a Christian is to live for Jesus Christ and not for yourself. To live in light of his truth and not for yourself. To understand things the way he understands them rather than the way humans understand them in their sin. To be renewed in the way that you reason. To reason as Christ has reasoned. To live righteously and have in the power of your life the ability to do so because of Christ. Everything's about Christ. Getting lost in the needs of others for the sake of Christ. Being thankful and grateful to Christ because everything we have is from his hand and we ought to cultivate that in our heart and life. Everything we've been studying about self-denial comes back to this one principle. It is about Christ. Everything's about Him. There is nothing more important than Him, nothing more important than His glorious gift, nothing more important than His person, His righteousness, His character, His power, His kingdom, His desires, His motives for us, His goals for us, His heart. There's nothing more important than Christ. And we are walking through a list of practical ways to demonstrate that, to grow in that in our lives and to help one another grow in that. And we come to number seven on our list of eight. The first, if you remember, the first six were to, uh, to deny self by seeking God's spiritual understanding. And that is therefore in Christ. We, we know he's the only one with understanding. We orient our life toward the truth because he is the truth. So it's about Christ. We allow him to renovate the way we think and the way we reason. Why? Because we want to reason like Christ. We don't want to reason like a sinner does or like the flesh wants to. We close up areas of temptation in our life because living for him is the most honoring and most wonderful thing. He's most worthy. 
Why do you want to open yourself up to temptations so that you can sin in ways that he died to save you from? It's just, we need to rethink how we live because that's what Christ calls us to. So we seal up the portals in our life for the sake of Christ. He's worthy. You lose yourself in the needs of others because that's what he did. He lost himself in the needs of his people. He saved us from our sins. And last week, cultivating thankfulness in your heart and in your life. Why? Because Jesus says, don't preserve your life. Give it up for me. Take up your cross daily and follow me. And we looked at what that meant. From Hebrews 13, there's a doctrinal foundation. It is because you have been taken from God's wrath and rescued from it. And so therefore, you live in constant thankfulness. Number seven on our list then brings us to a fitting discussion for this time of the year. And that is to learn the grace of contentment. To learn the grace of contentment. Listen, beloved, this this is therefore the death of self-entitlement. The death of self-entitlement. We have to die to the issue of self-entitlement. And dying to self will always involve learning the spiritual discipline and grace of contentment. What does it mean to be content? What does it mean? Well, to be content, just sort of putting it out there practically and in general so far, to be content is to let go of the sense of personal entitlement as it relates to your needs and your wants. To let go of a sense of personal entitlement as it relates to needs and wants in life. To be content is to rest in Christ alone and to rest in whatever he has ordained for your life. To be content is to live life knowing that whether you have possessions or whether you lack possessions on earth, everything that is a part of your existence comes from the hand of an all-powerful and all-wise God. We could say it this way, your present situation, therefore, is sufficient enough to secure your satisfaction and spirit of submission. Your situation, whatever it might be, is enough. It's sufficient enough to secure your satisfaction in Christ and your submission to Him. Now, it may help to look at it from the negative side. To be discontent, then, is to believe that you're entitled to more. To be discontent is to believe that you have some entitlement. You deserve something more. Expanding on that a bit, to be discontent is to have some level of unrest in your heart, in your life, over what has been ordained for you by God. What has he ordained for you? What are the life circumstances that are unfolding for you? What are you in the middle of? What does your life look like on all fronts? Whatever God has purpose for you and set about as your course to be discontent is to have some level of unrest that, that drives you to imagine you deserve something better. You're not at rest in Christ. Your faith is not as robust and active as it ought to be. That's discontent. 
We could also say that to be discontent is to live with that sense of insufficiency, that Christ isn't enough. Whatever you do have or you don't have, you look at it and you become a complainer against God's infinite power and his perfect wisdom for you. So when we talk about discontentment or its opposite, this contentment that we're going to learn here in Scripture this morning, we must know that as Christians, to deny self is to grow in our sense of rest and satisfaction in Christ so that we're not easily drawn into certain sins such as worry and complaining and personal entitlement. Or what I would suggest to you is the worst version of it, and that is resting in some earthly security. Trusting in it. Trusting in what you have, what you don't have. Trusting in what you can gain, what you can hoard. Trusting in what you're scraping for and trying to grab. In fact, of the few times in the New Testament where contentment is commanded, it's almost always universally tied to one of two issues. When contentment is mentioned in the New Testament, of the few times where we translate actually the word for content, it is universally, or at least in almost all cases, universally tied to two issues. One is financial resources, so we're commanded to be careful about how we view those things. And secondly, suffering and persecution. There is to be a rest and contentment when it comes to what we have or don't have, and there is to be a rest and contentment with regard to trouble. You see this term, one of the terms used by the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 10, when he is saying that when he prayed to God for his troubles to to be met by the Lord and and to have the, the difficulty in his life removed, like we all would pray, the Lord said, my grace is sufficient for you. And then Paul says this, therefore, I am well content. And it is... Uh, the lesser used New Testament word for content, and it is the word for uh, I approve of or I take delight in. It's very interesting. Paul is basically saying, look, if if the grace of Christ is going to grow in me and if faith is going to grow in me, then I approve of, I delight in, I'm well pleased with what's going on in my life. I'm well content with what's going on in my life. We could say that he's, he's saying this, I affirm with joy that this is best. That this is good, best, sufficient. Christ is all. Christ is my all. I'm well contented in that. The other context is financial resources or or earthly goods or the securities that you find while living in a temporal life. You remember when uh, the soldiers came out to see John the Baptist and they said, you know, what's, what's this message of repentance? And he said, look, I want you to repent. And you remember in Luke three fourteen, he says, you need to bring the fruit of true repentance. And the soldier said, well, what is that? What does that look like in my life? I'm a Roman soldier. And he said, you need to stop bilking people for money. You need to stop threatening them for money and be content with your wages. And there the New Testament uses a different word. And it's the word for to be sufficiently satisfied, to be content enough, to be satisfied, to have a sense of sufficiency in your wages, arkeo. 
Look at 1 Timothy 6 for a moment, and let's just sort of build on our understanding of this before we come to probably what will be the classic text on it in Philippians. But 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul is speaking here of people who who actually had fallen into the sin of trusting in the earthly material gain and resources they had, and they were using it as a, uh, as a way to gain an earthly advantage in the name of ministry. It was just grotesque hypocrisy. To trust in your resources and then to be preaching as though other people ought to, ought to bring their, their resources to you. This was just gross hypocrisy. And Paul calls them out... And he says, look, if you want to know what real godliness looks like, then it should accompany contentment because therein lies the real gain. 1 Timothy 6, verse 6, godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. Verse 7, for we brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we will be content What does he mean? That you should always have food and covering the way you think? No. Sometimes God may allow you to go somewhere and you end up starving. Sometimes God may allow you not to have the next meal. What he's saying here is, look, we're not going to be like those who fall into the temptation and snare of greed. We're not going to do that. If we're just given food and clothing, even if we weren't, but when we're given that, we're not going to wish for something more as if we should demand something more from God. Same word. We shall be content, satisfied, sufficient. It's enough. That's what you're saying to God. It's enough. Last week we studied Hebrews 13, you know, on the, on the fruit of thankfulness. And verse 5, you remember he mentioned that. Let your character be free from the love of material things, being content with what you have. So that is to say, be having a sense of sufficiency in what God has given you. Why? Because he has told you, I will never leave you, nor will I ever forsake you. Christ, having been now made a part of your life by his indwelling spirit, is your sufficiency. Now, probably the most familiar text on this is Philippians 4. So turn there and let's just walk through it. There, there's a... A practical way to learn the right perspective on where you're at in life. We we live in a rich culture, a a wealthy culture. We're not um, at the place where uh, we have to suffer what other people across the globe suffer. and, And for that, we ought to be grateful to God and yet at the same time never take it for granted. At the same time here, it's very, very interesting that you still have to learn contentment, whether you have a lot or a little. And Paul, when he's writing to the Philippians from prison, in Philippians chapter 4, he talks about a gift that they sent him. And it was a monetary gift, probably along with some encouraging notes about what was going on in the church. And in Philippians 4, verse 10, he says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at last you've revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. But not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, of having abundance and suffering need. 
I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you've done well to share with me in my affliction. Now, as I said, the Philippians had sent him a financial gift. They'd, uh, it, they'd, they, he mentions that they'd previously been faithful in his early ministry to supply him with some contributions. Even when he was in Thessalonica, they had sent a gift more than once. And even when in early in his ministry, people weren't supporting him, other churches hadn't gotten involved, Philippi was there doing what God had called them to do. But all of that talk, all of that supply was roughly 10 years earlier. Here he is now near the end. He's in prison. He's writing them. And finally, they found a way to get some resources to Paul for his livelihood while in incarcerated. And yet, you know, Paul had often been without the basics. He'd often been without food and shelter. He'd often been without safety and security. He'd often been without the fellowship of the saints. He'd often been alone, sometimes abandoned, always battling, and quite often under extreme pressure on the earthly goods side of it, the material gain side of it. You don't have to turn there, but in 1 Corinthians, in the letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, 9 to 13, he mentions a few of these things to the Corinthians. He said, look, God seems to have wanted to take us as apostles and display us as just men condemned to death. We're a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. He says, people treat us like idiots. We're fools for Christ's sake, he said. We're weak You guys in Corinth are all distinguished, but we as your leaders are the ones being tossed to the curb. We are without honor in this work. To this present hour, we're both hungry and thirsty, poorly clothed, roughly treated, and homeless. I mean, this is a struggle, this particular season of his ministry. And he says, look, we're still toiling, working with our hands. When we're reviled, we bless. When we're persecuted, we endure. When we're slandered, we try to make amends and, and redeem. When we have become, he says, like the scum of the world, the bottom of the barrel, the dregs of all things, right up to the point that I'm writing this letter, he says. And by the time he writes the second letter that gets into the, it's really the third letter that gets to the Corinthians, two of them we don't have, two we do, Second Corinthians is the third letter, and by the time he writes it, he mentions to them a whole litany of things that were the lot that God had ordained for him, and just, it's just staggering. Far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. The Jews gave me 39 lashes on five different occasions. On three different occasions, I was beaten with rods, stoned one time and left for dead, shipwrecked three times, 24 to 36 hours adrift in the deep with no hope of survival, dangers from rivers and robbers, from Jews and Gentiles, whether it's in the city, the wilderness, or on the sea, and threatened every day, every single day, by false brethren who want to kill me. Labor and hardship, Sleepless nights, look at this, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. (laughs) So, back to Philippians 4, when Paul says, I have learned to be content, there's that word, to have a sense of sufficiency in whatever circumstances I am. 
He is dying to a sense of personal entitlement. He's been in God's school of contentment and the spiritual disciplines for tapping into the grace that leads you to contentment. That is, that is where he's been. Now, if you've ever read the Puritan classic by Jeremiah Burroughs, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, it's a great little work, and I'm glad it was republished. It's, it's very easy to read, very accessible, and if you, if you want to get gripped and, and really challenged in this area, it's, a, it's an excellent read. But in there, he, he defines contentment generally, and then he takes uh, that definition and applies it to the Apostle Paul in an application of what Paul is saying. So here's the general definition of Jeremiah Burroughs on contentment. Christian contentment is is a sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Let me read it again. Christian contentment is a sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition, end quote. Now, if you take Paul's words, I've learned to be content, and you take that definition, here's what Jeremiah Burroughs says Paul is saying. So this lays it out on the table for you. Here it is. Here's what contentment is. A sufficiency of satisfaction in my own heart, Paul says, through the grace of Christ that is in me, that though I have no outward comforts and worldly conveniences to supply my necessities, yet I have a sufficient portion between Christ and my soul abundantly to satisfy me in every condition. There it is. Listen to that language. It's very well expanded. I find a sufficiency of satisfaction in my own heart. What is that? I have a sense of rest that Christ is sufficient, and through the grace of Christ that's in me, though the outward comforts and worldly conveniences to supply my necessities are not there all the time, I have a sufficient portion between Christ and my soul. In other words, Christ is ministering to my soul to bring me to abundant satisfaction. It is not about, therefore, what's outside of me. It is what God is doing in me. So how does Paul describe here the lessons that we need to learn? There are three of them here. Let's just look at them. Lessons in the school of contentment. Here they are. Number one, true contentment is not from earthly satisfaction. True contentment is not from earthly satisfaction. Notice verse 10 and the beginning of verse 11. I rejoice in the Lord greatly, he says that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. And then this, not that I speak from want. Now, as I said, Paul is in prison awaiting trial, which for him, with a simple thumbs down, would end his life in a moment. So he is... Hanging over him is this anticipation and burden and concern that this could be the end. And so he's rejoicing that after many years, the Philippians revived their ability to get some resources to him while he's in prison. 
No doubt it had some encouraging words, maybe news about the church, as I said. But having shared all of his rejoicing over the monetary gift, he puts the earthly needs and wants in perspective. And he says, not that I speak from want, personally. Not that I am personally in need of something that that is more than Christ. Not that I'm personally in need of earthly goods to make Christ something to me. Or to make my life mean something. Or to be at rest. In the literal language, you could translate it this way. Not that it is from a deficiency that I tell you I'm happy. I'm rejoicing that you sent the gift. It was an answer to prayer. But that's not why I'm ultimately rejoicing. Because there's nothing deficient inside of me. I'm rejoicing in the Lord greatly. But don't misunderstand. My praise is not about finally having an earthly need and comfort satisfied. For that I'm thankful. But that's not where my contentment is grounded. Now, you might be thinking in your mind, how, Paul, can you say that your joy isn't based on opening up this care package from the Philippians and finding some resources to pay off the guards for a few favors like, hey, can my friends visit me? Or, hey, can I have some decent food for a meal because I'm starving? Or to make things more comfortable like a blanket or something. He's under house arrest. He's never away from a Roman soldier, chained to one the whole time. And and even though he might have had a few favors because he was always treating the guards with Christ-like kindness, it was also true that he's a prisoner, so he gets very little daily sustenance. Sometimes prisoners were everything short of starved. So in this circumstance, he's got whatever garments he came in there with, and they probably took some of those away, so he's got meager covering regardless of weather conditions. And no way to influence the guards for favors like, hey, can I get some extra supplies for writing? Or can you, take, can you find me a courier that can take this letter to the churches? Or some visitors? Or maybe a blanket? Maybe a decent meal? So you get a care package like this. This is exciting. This is exciting. You know, when I was above the Arctic Circle in Alaska, it was just... In the wintertime, it was 24 hours of darkness and a couple of, Arctic, a couple of buildings connected by Arctic hallways. And there was no digital world, young people. I, I don't know if you know this, but phones are actually tethered to the wall. It's a shock. And uh, you, you, you got care packages. And when my folks would send me a care package or my wife would send me a care package, it got exciting. You open that thing. It's Christmas when you get something like that because mail was very slow and came up by barge or you know, an airplane that barely made it to the little landing strip way up, up north. It was exciting. And uh, I just try to put myself in Paul's situation here. He's prayed, and the Lord has met his need, but he wants the Philippians to know, look, don't you imagine that my joy or my contentment is rooted in seeing the significant financial gift. I know you've prepared it, but I want you to know something. My contentment is grounded not in... The way an earthly need meets a temporary, an earthly supply meets a temporary need. In fact, look at verse 17. If you doubt that, he says, look, I don't seek the gift itself, but for the profit which increases to your account. Look, if God wants me to give me this gift, that's great. If he doesn't want to give me this gift, that's great. But really, when you send it, it is to your spiritual advantage, and I am overjoyed at that. 
Because all I care about is how I'm honoring Christ. So I'm, if I'm honoring Christ by contentment, I'm happy. If I'm honoring Christ that you are honoring him, I'm happy. I'm grateful for the gift and your concern for me. But my joy comes from knowing that you honored the Lord with this sacrifice of praise, this fragrant aroma. It was well-pleasing to God. It brought spiritual fruit to your own walk of faith. That was my greatest concern. Paul is saying here that you can latch on to earthly things all you want. You can put your heart around them and wrap your mind around them and put your arms around them and bolt it down in your bank and all of the things that you want to do to secure what you have here. But in the end, it can't produce the kind of sense of sufficiency that is produced between you and Christ alone. It cannot. It won't. If you trust in that, listen, God has to take you through the school of contentment. You know, the big question that comes to our mind, besides this encouragement, how in the world does Paul keep from being consumed with the earthly needs? I mean, he doesn't have a whole lot. I mean, this is a temptation to want what you don't have. And, and the idea is that you're lulled into thinking that if you have it, you're finally going to be able to be content, but you're not. And that leads to lesson number two. True contentment is not only not from earthly satisfaction, but just looking at it from the other side, lesson number two, true contentment transcends your temporal concerns. It transcends your temporal concerns. Notice verse 11. Paul says, I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along when there isn't much, and I know how to live when there's a lot. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, having abundance and suffering need. Secret for what? How to stay having a sense of sufficiency that isn't based on those things. You say, oh man, this is a struggle. Look, there are some implications here and you don't want to miss them. The first implication of what I just read to you in 11 and 12 is that contentment is learned through your circumstance. Through it. Look, if you have a lot and you're not content, God may teach you contentment by taking it away from you. If you have a little and God wants to test what you trust in, he may give you some to see what you do with it. Either way, it brings trouble into your life. And what Paul is saying here is you don't learn contentment by standing up, clicking your heels together and saying there's nothing like contentment, hoping to bypass it all and just jump there. You can't do that. You must walk through it. I've learned, he says, in whatever circumstances I am. It's just a great Greek phrase. It just says, in in what I am. I've learned to be content in my circumstances, in what I'm experiencing, in what has come to me, in my lot in life, in whatever God has given me. Whatever my path is, wherever he takes me, a lot or a little, seasons that come up and seasons that go down, I have learned to be content wherever. And notice he says, with humble means or in prosperity, any and every circumstance, filled or going hungry, abundance or suffering need. Now we understand that terminology. We understand it. Whether you have a lot of economic means or not, you know the trouble of life. Any particular kind of trouble that we face, it may be totally different than others around us. Nonetheless, it is trouble and you must go through it if you're going to learn contentment. 
In fact, notice what the terms imply. Here's a second implication. Contentment isn't only for the less fortunate. Sometimes you think, oh man, if I had what that person has, I'd be content. No, listen, contentment isn't for, only for the less fortunate. Look at the terminology. I've learned to live in prosperity. You say, oh, of course, it's easy to live in prosperity. It's easy to live when you have a lot. How easy it is to be content at rest when you don't have a bill staring you in the face you haven't been able to pay in six months. And you can just buy anything you want. Listen, Paul indicates that that isn't the basis of real contentment. In fact, there's a great battle when you have things. A great battle for contentment. Why? Because you learn to trust in those things. True biblical contentment transcends earthly circumstances so that when you're content by God's definition, it can't be affected or destroyed by whether you have or you don't have. In fact, look at James 1 for a moment, just very, very quickly. You cannot miss what James says in James 1, 9 through 11. Wow, this is so important. Let the brother of humble means, let the one who doesn't have much, glory in the high privilege of that. If you don't have much, but you don't trust in much, what a high position it is. What a rich privilege. Because you don't have much. And so if you're content when you don't have much, you're learning what you should learn. Glory in the privileged position of not being tempted to trust in those things. But don't you dare long for it as if it is grounding your contentment. And he warns the person who has a lot. Notice he says there, then let the rich man glory in his humiliation. What does that mean? Look, you should glory in being content and not trusting in it because like flowering grass, it can be removed from you, taken away. It, you know, it, it always makes me wince when a brother who has been privileged with a lot imagines that somehow they made it. It's all theirs. It's theirs by their own strength. It is God that gives the power to get those things. And you better be very, very cautious. You better be careful. You should glory in the humiliation of earthly goods because if you have them, you know they're like flowering grass. They pass away. Contented people neither obsess over getting what they don't have nor trust in the earthly goods if they have them. There's a whole lot of trouble and burden in life whether you have things or don't have them. Let me tell you what the temptations are if you don't have things, okay? Here are the temptations if you don't have a lot. If you go through seasons where trouble and burden comes to your health and to your money and your bank account, economics and whatever. Here are your temptations. To sinfully fear... Hunger and shelter and exposure and destitution. If you struggle, if you have not learned to be content and you are the kind of person into a season of which God has taken for, for less things and you don't have as much as you would hope, then you're going to be tempted to sinful fear of hungering where your next meal is going to come from, exposure and destitution. Yet Jesus says, don't you dare do that. God knows what you have need of before you even come to him. You say, well, sometimes I, I don't know where my next meal is going to come from. Yeah, but God does. You say, but, but I went a day without, I just had one meal in one day. Then that's what God has for you. 
Contentment doesn't come from having three squares a day. And by the way, we're not really desperately troubled in this culture. And if you're a part of a great church, you're not going to miss anything. Pick up the phone. Believers love to bring meals. Your kids aren't going to starve in a culture like ours. Do people starve in this culture? Yes. Jesus said, the poor you always have with you. For a variety of reasons, God sometimes brings people to the end of themselves and to the gospel through the lack of economics. Absolutely. And sometimes he gives lots of economics so that people can be brought to the end of themselves because they try to get satisfied in all of it. And like Solomon, they end up empty-handed and they reach for their only hope. God has his purposes. But if you don't have a lot, it's going to bring trouble into your life. But you must walk through it to learn contentment. You're going to be tempted to sinfully fear destitution. Or you know what else? You'll be tempted to become crooked. How many believers have in the fear of not getting what they think they should have or they're not content with what God has given them. How many believers have in their greed and jealousy and envy run after get-rich-quick schemes and suffered many a, a trouble? How many? Lots and lots. I'll tell you what. Online gambling, beloved, this is a scourge. It's a scourge. First of all, there's no such thing as chance. God is sovereign. The die is cast in the lap of people, but God makes its every decision happen as he chooses. There is no such thing as chance. Furthermore, gambling never creates any new wealth. It just passes around wealth from one person to someone else and makes these destitute all in the name of what? Greed. It's troubling. Why? Because people aren't content. They're not sufficient in Christ. And so they become crooked, get-rich-quick schemes, and stealing and thievery. You know what else you'll be tempted with if you're not content? No matter that God's given you very little, you're going to have sleeplessness and jealousy and envy and bitterness. And then you'll start neglecting spiritual priorities. You'll think what's most important is all about what you can get on earth to secure that future. You'll hover over stocks. You'll hover over bank accounts. You'll forget God's people. You won't see clearly your priorities will change. You say, oh, but pastor, if I could just have a little bit of the ship come in, I could find it easier to be content. Really? Do you know what kind of temptations wealth brings? Here's just a few. Self-reliance. You don't want to be self-reliant. You want to be reliant on Christ. You don't want to be self-reliant because sin is not static. Sin is aggressive. It's in you. It's going to come after you. Your flesh wages war against the spirit. You can't just act like because you now have Christ, you can just casually approach uh, these temptations as we've been seeing. Look, self-reliance is coming at you. Satan wants to fuel it, pour gasoline on it. Your flesh loves it. You got to fight that. And when you have a lot, it is a massive temptation to imagine that you're all about self-sufficiency. I made this. When I walk into a room, everybody turns to me and and companies come after me and ministries come after me. Self-reliance is a devastating sin. When you don't have much, you might wish for it, but if you have an abundance and God has blessed you with that, self-reliance is a big temptation, huge. I'll tell you another temptation, boasting. Boasting. How about hoarding? <laughs> Boy, 
God sometimes blesses his people with a lot and we are far more the consumers than we are the givers. Far more. Tragic. We hoard. We collect. Oh, how much ministry could be done without all that? And the temptation to have a weak faith. When you have an abundance on earth, there can be a weakened faith. Parents, don't you, don't model discontentment to your kids. Don't do that. Teach them these principles that Paul gives here. Contentment is cumulative. It's moment by moment and cumulative. Notice Paul says, I learned it. In the, in the phrase, in the literal language, it means I have been instructed by life circumstances and it has produced the effect of contentment. Why? Because he knows that an abundance doesn't satisfy for what's re- what really matters and having little doesn't, wishing for what you had when you don't have it doesn't satisfy. You'll always long for more if you don't have unless you're satisfied in Christ and you will always trust in what you have if you're not satisfied in Christ that leads to lesson number three true contentment then is not from earthly satisfaction it transcends temporal concerns and it comes from our sufficiency in Christ notice verse 13 which you thought was for athletes to win a big game I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What about the other team, by the way? Do you ever think about that? What about Christians on the other team? Aren't they praying the same thing? I mean, I would love to see the conversation between two Christian athletes, the winner and the loser. And he says, God strengthened me to beat you. God, what? What? How come he didn't strengthen me to beat you? I guess you were the loser today. You got to be content. As one pastor said, God is not a heavenly bellhop or divine sugar daddy or cosmic power plant to fuel your dream quest, end quote. That's right. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What does it mean? Well, here's your, limpic, lim, your implications. Number one, there are no limits in Christ. I can do all things. You say, what does that mean? Everything that it pertains to what really matters in life and what godliness God wants to produce in you, right? Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3. God has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Look, can you, can you find something in the category outside of the word life? No. Is there anything more important than godliness? No. So when you read this verse with regard to contentment, it's telling you, I can do all things through Christ. All things. There's no limit. John 1.16, from his fullness we've all received and grace upon grace. I know what the problem is. We, we say, really, just spiritual blessings? Really, just pertaining to life and godliness? Really, that's it? I mean, I'd like a little slice of the earthly pie, Trust me, that's the whole point Paul is making. You do not want a slice of the earthly pie to ground contentment in. You may have it, you may not. God may give it, he may not. You may have a season of it, you may not. Paul learned to to put through the 
contentment, put through good times and bad, this thread of contentment grounded here. I already have grace upon grace. I already have no limits as to what really matters. The psalmist put it this way, Psalm 73, 25. Whom have I in heaven but what? You. Why would the psalmist be looking toward heaven when he lives on earth? Because that's all that matters. Where God is, what God is doing, God's purposes, eternity, character, righteousness, holiness, Christ-likeness, the saving of souls, redemption, Christ's coming, Christ's arrival. That's all that matters. Whom have I in heaven but you? You're it, God. And notice, it's not earthly power, but it's divine power. I can do all things through him. Listen, when the New Testament wants to talk about the kind of power that's resident within the believer to be, rest, to be at rest and settled, it uses a term that, that describes the power that created the universe. Colossians 1.11 says that we are strengthened with all power. And it uses that New Testament term, kratos, the might of God the might of the power of God to speak the universe into existence is resident for the believer to learn contentment, to be steadied, to be at rest. Man, you, you lost your job. You haven't had one in months or even some years. You can't seem to find a way to get your income back to where it was. You can't seem to get away from that nagging idea in the middle of the night that you're not supplying for your family. Listen, in the power of God, you can be at rest. Your focus is wrong. You think the answer is in some earthly change of your circumstances. It's not. You say, can I really tap that grace? Yes, but you cannot do it except through Him. So you go to Him. Look, this doesn't exclude burden about your needs. You pray for your needs. This doesn't exclude shedding tears about the circumstances you're in. You shed those tears. We weep with one another. This doesn't exclude going to God and saying, Lord, I, I need your help. But what this is, is deep down in your soul, a rest, a settledness. Where you don't become a complainer, you don't argue with God, you don't become resistant, you submit to his circumstances. You want to know what his desires are? Notice, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Strengthens me toward what? Toward his desires. No desire above his desires. I only want what he wants for me. I mean, if you want to be content, you got to deny self and start wanting what he wants for you. What does he want for you? Look, your life is hidden with Christ. Seek the things above. He doesn't want for you to attach yourself here. He doesn't want you to grab a hold here. Look at verse 19. My God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. There it is. The riches of Christ are yours. What does he want? He wants your holiness, Hebrews 12.10. He wants you to share in holiness. Why? Because look, beloved, when you're holy, you're at rest. When you're holy, you're secure. And the power of God gets displayed. And more importantly, you do not become vulnerable to wickedness. Discontentment is wickedness. 
Discontentment is a dishonor to Christ. Discontentment is dangerous. Discontentment will drag you away from righteousness. It will drag you away from holiness. It will make you bank on earthly goods. You'll run after greedy things. You'll become blinded by things you shouldn't be blinded by. You'll take family members and children into it. You'll produce in the next generation an even greedier heart than your own. Discontentment is dangerous. Jesus said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's the basis of your contentment right there. Let me close with one verse from Psalm 46. In fact, you know this verse because when somebody's really restless, you quote it to them, don't you? Psalm 46, do you remember? Be still and what? Ah, you all know it. How about that? You just didn't know the reference. I used to make my kids pay me money for quoting a scripture without knowing the reference. <laughs> so you all owe me money. <laughs> no, it's unfair. I have it in my notes. But notice this psalm. This is absolutely rich. Look at the language. Verse 1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth should change and though mountains slip into the heart of the sea, its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride. That's amazing language right there. It doesn't matter whether the entire creation falls away from your feet. There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She won't be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations made an uproar, kingdoms tottered, he raised his voice, the earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us, the God of Jacob is our stronghold. Come, look at the works of the Lord who has wrought desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth, he breaks the bow, cuts the spear in two, burns the chariots with fire. Look, he's saying, look, what power do you not have at your disposal if God is your contentment? Then he is the one who, if earth and heaven fled from your feet, you will not falter, you will stand. And so verse 10, cease striving. Stop clawing. Stop getting all worked up. That's a free translation of the Hebrew right there. Stop getting all worked up. Don't be discontent. Rest and know that I am God. I'll be exalted among the nations. I'll be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Paul says, look, I'm content with weaknesses. I'm content with distresses. I'm content whether I have a lot or content whether I have a little. Why? Because in my, my soul, by walking through those seasons, I've stayed away from greed and hoarding and the temptation to self-reliance when I've had a lot and I've stayed away from wishing for it and being bitter that I don't have it and coveting and envying and greed I've stayed away from the love of it when I haven't had it. My contentment doesn't rest in having received a care package that has money that I desperately needed. My contentment rests in one thing. Whatever God has given me as the disposition of my life and circumstances, He has never forsaken me and never will. That is a person who is at rest. He's at rest. And you can always tell that's a person who prays for their needs to be met, weeps over afflictions, 
But steady through it all is this inner quietness, as Jeremiah Burroughs put it. There's an inner quietness. Look, beloved, if you, if you can see those temptations in your own heart and you want to die to self-reliance and you want to die to self-entitlement, you've got to learn the grace of contentment. It comes through circumstances. And whether you have a lot or a little, just plead with God to extract your heart and soul from trusting in those things. And you know what you're going to have to do? You're going to have to admit when you don't. I mean, here we are in the Christmas season, and here you are running off to, to give and to buy and to purchase, and you're seeing all of this stuff around you, greed and discontentment and anger and bitterness. And even in families, we kind of get that way. It's all about our decorations, and it's all about our plans, and it's all about our meals, and it's all about whatever we want. But you've got to go before the Lord and repent of those things in the moment. Lord, I'm so prone to discontentment. I'm so prone to trust in earthly things. I'm so prone to find such comfort in my earthly goods or resources or situation that I just forget that it's not based on that. It's based on the fact that you have purchased me and you will never leave me nor forsake me. You have a physical affliction? Lord hasn't forsaken you. You say, well, I wish it wasn't my lot in life. Oh, no, you don't. Don't you wish that that wasn't your lot? Wish that the Lord be honored. He calls you to pray and leave your anxiety with him. Lord, please remove this affliction. Lord, please give us the economics we need. Lord, please keep me from the sin of greed. Lord, please keep me from trusting in what I have. But if his answer is, I'm taking you through the school of contentment, stay there. Stay there. Repent of anything that even is a whiff of discontentment. A sense of sufficiency that says Christ is enough. Christ is enough. That ought to be a song we sing, isn't it? Christ is enough. He's sufficient. That's number seven. Let's bow. Lord, the things on earth are so tempting to us. And we've been lulled to sleep by the cultural affluence. We've been lulled to sleep by the selfishness in our hearts that has taken your kindnesses and often taken them for granted. Lord, may we not be consumers but givers. May we come to you and seek your forgiveness often for our discontented hearts. We're so discontent with family life sometimes, with our kids, with parents. We're discontent with economics. We're discontent with health and afflictions. We're discontent with what's going on around us, discontent with your placement of us into whatever season you've given to us. We don't readily submit to it because we have fear, sinful fear, and we sometimes don't confess it. We have sinful greed, and we sometimes don't confess it. Sinful self-entitlement, self-reliance, boasting and arrogance and hoarding, and we sometimes don't confess it. Lord, please forgive us, your people. May we deep down grow in this sense of sufficiency in you because we believe by faith what you say that if you've given us yourself at the cross 
then how will you not freely give us all things? Everything pertaining to life and godliness is ours. Your power resides within us. We can be content. And so we want to believe and trust your command to cease striving and know that you are God. If you take us into a season of of lack, help us to honor you with contentment. If you take us into a season of abundance, help us to have a healthy dislike and distrust for anything that might creep in of self-entitlement, self-reliance. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen.